How is Greg Flynn incorporating more than 1,000 restaurants into his system? Hello, this is Jonathan Mays, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Business, and in this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, I speak with Greg Flynn, founder of Flynn Restaurant Group, to talk about its recent acquisition of the bulk of NPC International's restaurants. Flynn's company was already the largest restaurant franchisee in the U.S., operating in four brands, Applebee's, Arby's, Panera, and Taco Bell. It acquired most of NPC, operator of Pizza Hut's and Wendy's restaurants, only after agreeing to split NPC's 400 Wendy's units with the company and some existing operators. The deal made Flynn Restaurant Group even bigger, now operates some 2,300 restaurants and generates $3.5 billion in annual sales, making it one of the largest restaurant operators of any kind in the United States. Flynn talks about folding NPCs into his company and why the operator has been able to add so many restaurants over the years. Greg is always a great interview with great insights into the state of the industry. Please have a listen. Okay, I am here with Greg Flynn. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Jonathan. Pleasure to be here. So um, uh, pick up the pace, man. Only uh, 1,100 uh, locations you purchased this time. Well, I'm slowing down. (laughs) COVID and, you know, you got to take it slow. So what, I guess the question is, like, first off, let me ask this. How do you integrate 1,100 units into your system and talk a little bit about that? Well, it's qualitatively no different than prior acquisitions. This is our 21st acquisition. Uh, The most recent before this was of US Beef, which was 369 Arby's restaurants. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's almost twice as big as the Wendy's acquisition here. Uh, It's, you know, less than half as big as the pizza in terms of number of units, but it's qualitatively similar um, to both. Uh, And so this is going to be, you know, it has been, I mean, we closed last week. So it has been, you know, a a repeat of those only two at once. Um, It went incredibly smoothly. It's it's now done. We had a couple of very minor glitches that were not really noticeable to anyone except, you know, a few of us uh, on almost no one in the field, I think, saw any glitches. Um, Now we need to, you know, integrate them culturally and make the whole thing work. But in terms of the closing, uh, it went as smoothly as it could have. Right. So you're pretty well versed at all of this sort of thing, integrating it. I mean, is there is there a process on how you integrate uh, an organization uh, from a cultural standpoint? You got to be pretty good at this at this point. Well, this is an interesting one. You know, NBC was a great company with a long history of success, um, and it, it had has its own culture. Um, we at Flynn have our culture and we believe in it. Uh, and, but we're not so you know, arrogant to think that our way is the only way or the best way to do everything. And so we try to go into every acquisition, but especially this one, with our eyes open to different ways to do things that might be better than the way we do it. I mean, this is a company that really executed at scale in multiple markets. Um, it's what we wish to do well. And if they figured out something better than the way we do them will, you know, will change. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so I think that's really the, the heart of the process here. This is not, you know, you're now Flynn, act like Flynn. This is, let's put this together and get the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. When did you, I mean, when did it, I mean, could you, when did you think, hey, we could, we could take on NPC? When did, how did this whole process start? Well, it started um, early in 2020 when uh, I first heard that NPC was heading toward bankruptcy and that the Wendy's portion at least was coming to market. You know, the original plan was to 
sell Wendy's um, and not sell Pizza Hut. And they hadn't filed yet, um, but I was pretty serious about it because, you know, I looked at this and I was like, wait a minute, like we have an objective to grow, to grow. We have an objective to grow in QSR. Mm-hmm. The biggest segments in QSR are burger and pizza, which are the two segments where we are not. It's hard to enter one premier brand at scale. This is two premier brands. Yeah. This is the unicorn. And there's very few people I thought could do the whole thing and, and that it would be attractive to the seller and to the court uh, to have one transaction. And so that thought it formed in my mind sort of immediately. And, and I became pretty determined to get this done from the first minute I started thinking about it. And that was a process of, okay, how do we do it? I've never bought anything out of bankruptcy before. You know, we put together a team with just the best advisors. We had to study up on how the whole process works. Um, but, you know, we did. And here we are. You never bought anyone out of bankruptcy? Is that, I, I guess you haven't. I hadn't even thought about that. No, I never have. No. So you had some, uh, but you had to convince Wendy's. How did you get convince Wendy's to go along with the deal? Well, you know, Wendy's um, under Todd Pentagor's leadership has, has a really solid team. And, you know, they know good when they see good. And, and, but I think they suffered from what is a, a pretty um, common sort of bias in, in the industry of franchisors thinking bid, big is bad or big is often enough bad that they're skeptical. And, you know, I think they were skeptical of, you know, anyone buying the whole 400 Wendy's um, and they had a preference to break it up. Um, It it was a process of getting to know each other uh, and convincing them that, you know, we could uh, be a great franchisee of theirs and run, you know, our Wendy's restaurants well each and every day and invest in them, you know, because they're in the middle of an image activation uh, program, which is very important, but very expensive. Um, that we could be a great franchisee to them at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took, it, it just took a while for us to understand each other's objectives and what we each brought to the table. And, you know, at the end of the day, we compromised. We ended up buying half the restaurants. The, re- the other half were broken up between other existing franchisees. It was a great compromise. It, it was mm-hmm. fine. And, you know, over time, they will judge us by what we do. We think they'll come to value us as a franchise partner and, you know, they'll be fine with us growing from here, but it's a long game we're playing. I mean, we don't need to be 400 now. There's no magic to any number. Um, we like to grow, but we need to earn it. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, are you finding that that sort of like pushback from franchisers, is that more common now than it was when you started, you know, when, when you were buying up Applebee's back in the day? I mean, um, I mean, I get a sense that, franchisers today are a little bit more reluctant to have a giant franchisee in their system than they might've been before, or is that just my perception? I think there's a little bit of both going on. You know, there's been consolidation in the franchise space. And I think many franchisors are, are, um, they're embracing uh, consolidation. They realize that, you know, they may or are better off with fewer, larger, better capitalized, professionally managed, well-heeled franchise partners. Um, there is still some skepticism around it though. And, you know, there have been some high profile, um, uh, you know, problem scenarios with large franchisees. MPC is an example, uh, RMH and Applebee's was an example. So our mission is to help everyone see that big isn't necessarily bad. In fact, big can be 
good, very good, right? Mm -hmm. But we yeah. need to earn that just by running our restaurants well and being good partners. Right? Yeah. Did you have to convince your investors on this one? I mean, how did that process work? <laughs> yeah, you know, I had to convince everyone on this one. I, mean, <laughs> this one I, I had to drag this one you know, into the race and then ultimately over the finish line. Um, mm -hmm. Everyone got there eventually. It took a while to come to believe that Pizza Hut, the brand, was in the process of turning itself around and that this was, in fact, a great time to join the brand. That the way we're joining the brand through this bankruptcy where MPC, you know, culled their portfolio by a quarter, you know, created the perfect entree point for us. Um, that we could and should get into the burger space through when I mean the whole thing took convincing, uh, right. but you know I, everyone got on board at the end. Of yeah, the I mean I I thought Pizza Hut was I mean just like Wendy's is I mean Wendy's last year had actually a really good year, and if you look at their numbers, their year last year was 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 quite good. Pizza Hut, um, I mean if you just if you take out their dine-in locations. They performed just as well, if not better, than Domino's and 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 Papa John's did last year. Um, you know, they're right now hitting on a lot of different things, and so I thought that. I mean, to me, it seemed like a really good time to get into Pizza Hut, especially if you can, I don't know, get rid of the uh, some of those dine-in locations, which is what that deal seemed yeah. to accomplish. Of the three hundred restaurants NBC closed before we bought their assets. Um, most of them were dine-in and, and especially Red Roof facilities. So they did a lot of heavy lifting for us, but we still have like 200 dine-in restaurants. And you know, we will be going through an asset optimization program over the next few years where we figure out what's the best solution for all of those. And then for the whole rest of the estate, you know, there's a lot of remodeling necessary. There's um, uh, going to be growth opportunities. I'm excited to grow in, in mm -hmm. pizza. We first need to get our existing estate in order, but you know we will be, I think, an aggressive builder in Pizza Hut in short order. Mm -hmm. um, I'm excited about that. I think it's a great time to join the brand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, I just saw. I mean, just uh, actually wrote about this morning that they had. Uh, they're adding drive-throughs. <laughs> I've, I've heard about that. Yeah, it's fantastic. It'll be great. That's something see. you're going to be doing. You're going to be doing a lot of those because you were mentioned in the press release. Hold on, I'm uh, talking. I'm turning down my heat right now. It's blasting at my feet. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll be, um, we look forward to being, you know, sort of thought partners and test partners with our franchise. We'll, we'll hopefully be testing everything that gets tested. That's That's been our practice in all of our brands. Um, and, and we hope to continue that with Pizza Mm -hmm. So where do you, I mean, I guess, where do you go from here? I mean, it's, it's a little impossible, it's a little difficult to top the first, the largest franchisee in the United States, buying the second largest franchisee, um, you know, and now, I mean, I think I did calculations. You guys are the third largest restaurant operator in terms of number of restaurants operated. Um, you're roughly as big as uh, Panda Express from a sales standpoint now. I mean, where do you go from this point? Well, there's a lot we can do to improve our existing restaurants, especially the ones we just bought. Uh, I think that we're going to see a lot of organic growth, just positive comp sales in the industry and in our portfolio going forward. So we can grow just organically that way, but also through value added things like image activations at Wendy's and you know relocations and Delco's and such in Pizza Hut. Um, I look forward to building restaurants in all of our brands 
Um, and then, you know, never say never. We're open to other acquisitions into new brands or new spaces. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to talk a little bit. A uh, few months ago, you used the term roaring 20s to describe what you see as the next decade. Um, I assume you still believe in that? More than ever. Yeah. Yeah. How's More business right now? I mean, first of all, stimulus checks have hit American pocketbooks and they are basically taking their checks and walking into our restaurants and handing them over. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, anecdotally, every piece of evidence I have now is that the last few weeks have been, I mean, I'll just say like there was a McDonald's operator that publicly said he thinks that they had record upon record day in that system, which tells you about everything you need to know. And every single person I have talked to since has roughly said something similar. It's been actually really interesting to see what's happened. Well, it's a perfect storm, right? I mean, there's pent up demand from the pandemic. And now that vaccines are rolling, infection rates are falling, people are getting out, they see the light at the end of the tunnel and they're excited to get out. Savings rates have been incredibly high through the pandemic. So people just have more money in their bank accounts already. And then stimulus checks hit, tax rebates hit, unemployment, you know, supplemental unemployment insurance hits. And then there's um, changing work patterns. You know, people are still working from home. I think they will work more from home than they did pre-COVID going forward. Honestly, I think that creates a tailwind for some restaurants, especially, you know, sit down dining like dinner houses. Because, you know, if you've been at the office all day, you don't want to come home at night. But if you've been at home all day, like going out that night is more attractive. And I think we'll see some of that. Um, and then there's the supply side of it. You know, very sadly, a lot of restaurants have closed. Mm -hmm. And for those of us who are left standing, it's a more attractive competitive landscape. So it's a perfect storm of everything right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just look at what, you know, myself, I've been stuck in the house for much of the past year. I haven't eaten inside a restaurant nearly as often as I used to. And I don't want to be in my house anymore. I mean, I well, like my go house. Out to, go out to Applebee's. Or, I go out to Applebee's. I love Applebee's. <laughs> I, I am, I am, and I have become, I will tell you over the last couple of years, I have become an unabashed lover of casual, traditional bar and grill track, casual dining. No question about it. And the reason is pretty simple. Like, I guess the point, like we, I took my kids, uh, I took my kids uh, tubing not that long ago. And afterwards, you know, we just wanted, we wanted to know what the experience was like. I, um, uh, I, you know, we were, I mean, we were still in our, we weren't dressed up by any stretch of the imagination. I didn't want to mess around with going to find, um, you know, just finding some local place or anything like that. I want to know what I was going to get, but I wanted to sit down. I wanted to enjoy myself. And, um, you know, my kids love it. You know, my kids really do like going there. And the other thing I'll tell you is that the value, value offering now, fast food restaurants have raised their prices so much over the past couple of years. It is no different for me to order Applebee's for my family than it is to sit at home and order delivery. You know, I love hearing you say that. I think a lot of people haven't figured that out consciously yet, uh, but, but they will, you know, or unconsciously they're going to get to know. Certainly it's um, our opportunity to inform people about the incredible value that, you know, casual dining offers, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, how about uh, do you have any you have any concerns about labor right now? I mean, we're hearing pretty broadly that some people, you know, a lot of restaurants having a tough time finding workers. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have concerns about labor, you're not in the restaurant business. It's, it's the issue. Uh, incredibly difficult. Again, it's perfect storm of supply and demand. Right. So demand is surging in restaurants 
and labor supply is you know, challenged because of heightened unemployment benefits, stimulus checks. I mean, there are a number of people who just want to stay at home because they can, um, and it, it poses a real challenge. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you fix that? I mean, how do you fix that as an operator? Is that some anything you guys are doing as a system, or are there things that your operators are doing to try to to overcome that at all? Yeah, I mean, we are. Um, I mean, there's a thousand things we're doing. Um, it, it boils down to trying to be the employer of choice first and foremost. So people want to come and work for you, and then they want to stay with you once they're there. And there's a whole host of ways. You know, you recruit people, and then you try to retain them once you've got them. Um, and then of course, you know, we're trying to be as efficient as with labor as we can everywhere. Now the pandemic was super helpful for that. And we got really efficient with labor. Um, and we also really streamlined our menus everywhere. And, and that helps with labor efficiency. Um, but it's the challenge. Um, I'm just gonna, you know, I think the other thing um, is Congress can help a lot. Right now, if uh, we can um, rationalize our immigration policies, and, you know, frankly, facilitate legal immigration of the type of really great, hardworking folks who want to work in our restaurants. I'm all for that. Yeah. I don't quite understand why we don't hear the restaurant industry talking about immigration more as a, as a labor issue. Um, it's it's never, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never understood. I mean, you're saying that. it, you're, I, you know, I mean, I just don't hear, I mean, to me, I've always thought that like, like immigration has been. I, I, a, a major supplier of of uh, of of, uh, of labor for the restaurant space, and you know, I mean, you there there's a lot to like about um, immigrant you know, the immigrant workforce, and they've done you know a, a mar- and so it would seem like you'd want that fixed. Well, I think over the last four years, especially, it's been a sensitive topic, um, but everyone in our industry knows how important it is that you know we have that labor supply. And by the way, we're not. It's not just a selfish thing. I mean. It's sort of good on both sides of the equation, in my opinion. Right, right. So, um, talk a little bit about. Or you've talked about about this a few times. Talk a little bit about the your state federal operations strategy, because I always think that's always worth reminding people. Because you've got this, again, a large organization that runs a number of different brands. Or now, I mean, what you're pretty much in, on both coasts, on on all four sides of the country now at this point. So you're yeah, everywhere. Yeah, we're in 44 states now, actually. Really. So, I mean, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the state federal, how that, how that operate, how you manage to operate such a a massive organization like that? Yeah. I think it's one of the, you know, secret sauces here. It's, um, it's not that secret. Uh, You know, the, we believe that the key to success in this business is simply running your restaurants well each and every day, year after year. So how does one do that? Like who does that the best? And our belief is that sort of local owner operators do that the best. They're the closest to their restaurants. And by that, I mean, most importantly, they're closest to their own people. Like they know their staff. And then, you know, they know their competitors and they know their customers and they know the vendors and they know the physical geography and, you know, construction, like everything that affects restaurant performance. Like they're just in a better position. They have more, more better information than anyone trying to manage remotely. Um, so, and then that's one side of it. The other is, you know, when you, um, when you push authority down the line as far as you can, and you give ownership of decision-making to the people who are really on the ground, they simply execute better. I mean, they own the decisions. They made the decisions, mm-hmm. right? It's completely different than being handed 
a directive and being told to implement it. Like you'll, you'll never own the result the same way that you will own it if you yourself <clears throat> evaluated the circumstance and made the decision or, or you collaborated in a group that collectively made the decision. So our, our state and federal model tries to balance, you know, the benefits of local owner operator status. You know, in our case, they're called market presidents and they run geographic territories, span of call it 20 to 60 restaurants, something like that, close enough so that they can get to the restaurants with great frequency and know their people. Um, but there are very real scale economies in, in the business. You know, everything that you do in an office, frankly. So it's, you know, admin, finance, HR, IT, purchasing, training, real estate, um, and, and an aspect of that is how do you attract world-class talent to the support function as a small operator? Like, it's just very difficult to do that. But it's a, one of the scale economies is simply, you know, the, the level of talent you can attract. So what we're trying to do is strike a balance between, you know, the benefits of being big and the benefits of being small. That's where you get a state and federal model where, you know, it's sort of a constellation of quasi-independent or at least you know locally empowered operators supported by a central structure that is truly world-class the key to it all is alignment of interests and we do that through you know profit sharing and through equity ownership that are shared much more generously than the industry norms did that evolve over time or did that something that you was there like a grand plan that you came up with 15 20 years ago it evolved sort of accidentally um, with our first acquisition in Applebee's in 1999. You know, we bought these eight restaurants in Washington and Brad Penter is still our, my partner in our COO. Um, and the guy running him was a guy named Dan Krupsack, who in fact runs Apple American for us now, all 444 restaurants. Um, and we said to him, Dan, you know, we don't know about running Applebee's, but we believe you know everything about running Applebee's. Here's your chance. Like, we're going to trust you to be all the authority to run these as you think they ought to be run. And, and he had a lot of ideas of things he would do differently because, you know, he was owned by a Midwest franchisee who just wanted to do everything the way he did it in the Midwest. And, and that's not how it works in Washington. And we said, go. And it's like, we just want to align our interests through, you know, profit sharing and equity. And, and we want you to act and in fact be compensated like you're the franchisee. And um, we will support you with money and we're going to support you with like the admin stuff, but, but go. And it, it went extraordinarily well right from the start. And so then when we expanded two years later and bought the rest of the franchises restaurants, which, you know, were uh, 62 other restaurants in three different markets around the country, that's when we became, you know, that was, that was when Flynn Restaurant Group was really formed as a multi-market national sort of business. But by that point, I 100% had the idea this is the way to go. Like, you know, Dan, Dan likes his job better. He's doing better. The business results are better. We're all making more money. This is the way to go. Uh, and so that's, that, that was a deliberate rollout at that moment in, in December, 2001. Right. Yeah. It's um, yeah. That's kind of what franchising is all about. Right. I mean, it's, I mean, the, the whole process was devised as an idea that you have local ownership and local responsibility and, and, you know, and, and that's, you know, over time, you know, helps, helps a business over the long term, um, you know, and so you're basically just adopting a form of that is a large scale franchisee. It is. Yeah. I've, I've never even thought about it that way, but that's right. So the franchisor, you know, takes care of some of the very, very crucial stuff in the restaurant business, like, 
menu and marketing and prototype development. But, but there's a whole other set of things which are very important, which you can provide to the restaurants, almost like you're a franchise or not a franchise or like, you know, a partner that provides the other things. Like that's mm-hmm. sort of what our federal part does. Mm-hmm. So where do you think the industry goes um, uh, goes from here? I mean, I mean, we talked a little bit about that in terms of how the 90s, about the, how the 20s are going to be. Do you think, uh, like, for instance, let me ask you this. Do you think that third-party delivery sticks around in its current form or where does that go? Uh, yeah, I think, I think it sticks around. I think it grows. Um, I think there will likely be some form of change to the price model. You know, already... The, the cost of it is being passed to the consumers by the big brands, right? I mean, and they're doing it either through, you know, paying sort of zero commissions. And so the aggregators just need to charge a higher delivery fee. That's fine, right? I mean, or it's doing, they're doing it through elevated pricing on those platforms. One way or another, the restaurant industry has no room to cut it into its own margins for delivery. Guests want the convenience of delivery. They're going to have to pay for it. They already are paying for it for, with the big brands. So I think all the independents are going to get to the same place uh, eventually. Um, and hopefully there'll be more transparency to consumers around the cost of delivery. I mean, they're paying it. They might as well know how much they're paying for it. And, and when they do that, you know, maybe they'll wake up and realize, wow, you know, really, it just cost me like 10 bucks to avoid driving five minutes to my local Wendy's to pick it up, you know. I, I should have tried that again, <laughs> especially once, you know, Wendy's or Taco Bell has a digital order ahead and a dedicated drive-through lane to pick it up. And it's just that easy. Like, I mean, so so it'll it'll be around, but I think it will change and get streamlined and, and more transparent. Yeah. It's it's like half the price just to go to the restaurant these days. If you get fast food, it's 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 actually, I mean, on the ridiculous side, we just did. You know, I mean, like we did a, we did a, we, we rated all the chicken sandwiches. And so we had a bunch of people that were ordering chicken sandwiches for a variety of groups in a variety of different formats. And it actually became an interesting case study as to how much money you pay just to have delivery. We had some person, we had one young person that would only order a chicken sandwich by delivery and will cost her at least 15, $16 every single time to get it delivered. Now, I mean, but you know, as you know, and again, I, had my family at home, I would always order food for my family. That price premium to get food delivered, and you should pay premium, right? It's a service. Yeah. But I, I, it's hard for me to imagine people continuing to pay this. Once we're away from all of this stimulus-enabled stuff that's going on right now, and people don't have as much money as they do at the moment and have more things to spend their money on, eventually, I think that has to go. It, it Something has to give to me. Well, I also think that people are going to figure out, or maybe they already have, or many have, that you can get the food faster and it's hotter. And frankly, it's a safer, safe, it's a safer chain of custody mm-hmm. for you to just get in your car and run down there. Yeah, it's easy. We do it all the time here in San Francisco. Like, I mean, I, I literally can order from my local restaurant and they text me when it's ready. I get there. I text I've arrived. They run out to my car. I'm, I'm, the whole thing takes like less than 10 minutes and it's hot, like, you know, versus I order from an aggregator and it's an hour process and it's cold. You know? Right. Yeah. No one's going to steal your fries or anything like that. Your food, you know, you, you control the entire process. I mean, part of me is I, part, I'm a control freak. So I, you know, I don't order delivery 
usually as a rule. So, but still, I mean, the price is, is sort of a, the prices issue is something I think that the industry is going to have to contend with. And to me, I still think that it, it, there is a potential where it really does shift the scales back to casual dining, especially if you have a consumer that's going to be looking for that dining experience again. Yeah. Yes. So suddenly I'm bullish on casual dining for the first time in a long time. Good. Greg, this was fantastic. Really appreciate you joining us uh, again on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. It's always a pleasure. And that should do it for this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, which, as always, was edited by Kimberly Kazmarek. Artwork by Nico Hines and Sarah Stewart. You may find this and other episodes of the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash deeper dash dive. You may also subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host, podcast producer, and the editor-in-chief of Restaurant Business. Thank you for listening. (music) 